I have a dream that all men are created equal. G'day everyone, welcome back to your story. I'm your host, Ian Kath, and this is episode 32. Yes, yes, I'm back, and I've got a huge story for you today. But last time around, I actually sent a bit of a, you know, hey guys, get in contact with me, please. It's nice to know you're out there. I said that, remember? Well, Drew did. G'day, mate, how are ya? Drew's in uh, Kelowna. Yeah, I think that's how I pronounce it. Kelowna, that's beautiful British Columbia. He sent me a lovely email and a photo. I'm eventually going to put the photo up on the site. I'll uh, write a little post in regards to that. Drew, thanks very much, mate. It was uh, absolutely wonderful to know you're out there all the way over in the lovely Canada. Got a lot of times for Canadians. As a matter of fact, I've had a Canadian just move in today next door. Uh, got a lot of time for you guys. So thanks very much. And anybody else out there who listens to the show, uh, send me an email. I'd love to know that you're about. And what's the address? Oh, here it goes again. Chat at yourstorypodcast.com. It's always good to know. Hey, the site, yourstorypodcast.com. Please leave a comment at the end of a post if you like what you see. And today, I strongly recommend you go over to the site because there's some YouTube clips that I'm linking to and uh, some rather rather amazing photos that you really need to go and have a look at to fully appreciate our subject matter. So uh, make sure that you go and check out the photos on the site, yourstorypodcast.com. You can get the iTunes feeds, the you know RSS feeds, all that sort of stuff. Um, and remember that you know just because you subscribe on iTunes doesn't mean you pay anything. It's all free, 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 free. We give this away. I give this away. I love doing it. I just wish I could do it a bit more often. But anyway, that's the way it goes. Uh, music, of course, Iota Promonet. I'm just looking at my notes here, make sure I cover everything that I'm supposed to do. I've got to mention Iota Promonet. They uh, they give me the music that I've laid down underneath this, and uh, hopefully it's something that's appropriate. Now, today's story. <coughs> today's story starts with a tale of woe. Today's story started about 12 months ago. There's a uh, video store in my local area, Trash Video, it's called, and there's. A person who works there, Andrew, who is one of the characters of the local area. Everybody in town knows about him. And uh, I thought, we, I got to, I just got to do a story with Andrew at some stage. So I originally hit him up in February of last year. And uh, there were all sorts of problems. He was going away to Manila and then I was going away. And one thing led to another and we just couldn't get it organized. He was busy, I was busy. And the month slowly went by and I saw him just before Christmas and he said, how about the new year? And I went, okay. And eventually, come early February, we had it all set up. We sat down and we recorded a show and it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And it was about two and a half hours long, total recording. But I uh, learned a profound lesson with my H Zoom H4 recorder is that 
if I'm using rechargeable batteries and the battery power dies quickly and if it's during a recording beyond a certain length it doesn't have time to format the file yes you're starting to read right I ended up with an hour and a half of corrupted file didn't I and I could not recover it I tried everything so with tail between legs I went back to Andrew after like I said 12 months of trying to put it together and I said hey Andrew this is a story can we do it again so we sat down and we did it again and that's what you're about to hear <laughs> it was it was great fun it was good fun doing it a second time around even though I'd heard some of the stories he flushed them out with other stories and so it was good in that regard but ah uh, what a tragedy that I had to do it again that you know I'm sure this will probably won't be the last time that happens so that was the story and, and anyway we got it and we got a story and we got a story about trash video and trash video is a store full of weird alternative eclectic eccentric unusual weird and like how can i explain it is just a bizarre it's just a bizarre video store full of all these unusual things and andrew explains the personality that he is that actually led to the creation of it and then led to the discovery of well i'll let you find out from him and he can tell you the story about all of this adventure and where it's going and how we got there and how it all evolved uh it's a very long story today i warn you folks but it is <laughs> um it's just a wild ride uh, let's go let's go listen to it here's andrew's story Twenty third of February two thousand and nine. I'm sitting here with Andrew, and as I've just explained in the intro, we're going to do this again. So, um, but there's some been some new news. So this is actually going to be better off, I think, Andrew. So let's, which I can't officially talk about. Oh bugger! I know. <laughs> well, I'll put it on the site when you find out. But <laughs> welcome to the show again. But um, this is the first time for everybody else listening to it. Thanks, Michael. It's been uh, fantastic. I've um, always wanted to be on Parkinson. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so, Andrew, you've got this um, trash video. Uh, it's a great name, and um, it's as people go into the site and have a look at the photos, that you can see it's just full of old videotapes, lots and lots of old videotapes, and some new DVDs. Just tell us, tell us a little bit about your story, mate. What's the story of trash video? What's the story of you know what are you up to? Well, I guess it started when I was uh, a kid of nine years old and uh it was one of those glorious moments where i'd spent about five years six years in the middle east up until that point completely uh, deprived of culture but aware that there was this whole world of movies that um i wasn't privy to for various reasons you know my parents wouldn't let me sit up and (laughs) you know watch late night horror movies when we were in england um there weren't any cinemas in the Middle East. Uh, television was rudimentary, to say the least. And uh, all of a sudden, Betamax arrived in Bahrain when I was nine years old. And all of a sudden, you know, video shops back then were um, basically pirate outlets uh, for anything that um, enterprising operators would have taped off TV you know, in England or <laughs> or videotaped off the cinema screens uh, and and 
put on the shelves probably less than a week later. Wow. So this would have been back in the days of large cassette video uh, cameras in a cinema. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine trying to smuggle one of them, um, you know, on the back of a pack mule. And, uh, God, I remember seeing um, Return of the Jedi probably about three days after it premiered in London. And uh, <laughs> when I got back to Australia, no one had seen it yet. It was quite bizarre. But, um, yeah, I'd already pirated it about 20 or 30 times for, for friends on Betamax. <laughs> um, of course, this isn't an indication of my future career, <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, even even back then, I was making my own what video sort, library of... What of, sort of movies uh, were you interested in when you were a kid at what, this age? Uh, well, I guess age nine, everyone else was getting excited about Star Wars, and I didn't give a shit about Star Wars, to tell you the truth. I saw the first one uh, about three years later, after the, the hoo-ha had died down, and, and I just thought it was kind of lame, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't... And I, and I still don't like what is considered traditional science fiction, you know, this kind of space opera where you've got a really simplistic um, good versus evil story with people spouting the most inane rubbish about the planet Pluon and the Emperor Garganag. Um, you know, I just, I just find it... Um, so Battlestar Galactica doesn't float No, nah, No, not at all. What about, no. What, about, what, what, I did, what I did dig... What about Doctor Who, though? Um, which, which, well, which is a bit weird. See, I cut my teeth on Doctor Who, but even then, you know, I, I found the whole thing a little ludicrous. Okay. I, thought, I thought it was more of a comedy than anything. <laughs> but, um, but what I really did get my teeth into was this whole idea of um, dystopian science fiction, and it kind of fit in with my um, creepy, depressed little kid um person <laughs> and so i was watching films about the apocalypse and um you know the devolution of society and uh, and all that sort of stuff you know i thought that logan's run was probably one of the greatest films yeah, of, the, of the 1970s yeah. the amiga man freaked the crap out of me as a right. kid but this whole idea of um you know apocalypse and and uh catastrophe really did kind of strike a chord so i loved the science fiction of doom and the science fiction of um, future gone bad. So there I was as a nine-year-old watching stuff like, um, oh, God, I was obsessed with war movies. Um, I loved the Sergio Leone westerns. Um, I saw The Good, The Bad and The Ugly when I was nine. Nine seems to be a critical... We're talking about spaghetti westerns here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, because I'd seen the odd... John Wayne Western on TV and thought, eh. but all of a sudden there was this kind of operatic nihilistic Western <laughs> and it blew my mind. You know, the good, the bad and the ugly scene at nine years old absolutely changed um, the face of cinema for me. The same way that watching Jaws through a pair of binoculars, you know, across a valley, <laughs> you know, on a, on a um, social club screen in Oman when I was five years old made me obsessed with, um, with, with this idea of, um, of, uh, you know, sus- suspense, horror, shock. Um, could you hear it? I, I could, I could hear it about three seconds after the action <laughs> through the binoculars. So you'd see the girl get taken by the shark before you heard a scream. Then you could hear a scream and already then she was under the water. And <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was a weird phasing effect, which, uh, probably added to the the otherworldly um feel to 
the whole film. And um, then when I was 10, I remember watching The Exorcist. It had been videotaped off a cinema screen. And uh, the whole thing was luminous green. Um, and it made it even more ghastly. <laughs> if you can imagine, it was, you know, kind of like um, peering at the movie uh, that was playing in another room through a dirty fish tank. Um, and it just made the the horror kind of you know, in, in another dimension. Then I remember, um, cause I mean, I, I ended up becoming, becoming absolutely obsessed with horror films. The devil rides out that hammer movie with Christopher Lee fighting the fighting Satan. <laughs> at one point he actually throws a vial of holy water at the devil himself. Um, it just absolutely blew my mind. And so, I shouldn't be admitting to this because it is really creepy. That's right. But as you and I here. Oh, absolutely. So I'll treat this as a confessional. When I was 10 years old, you know, after having watched The Devil Rides Out at nine, I found a goat skull out in the desert. And so I set it up in the middle of a jigsaw puzzle of the Zodiac and stuck candles in the goat's eye sockets, lit the candles, and would sit there having bogus satanic ceremonies. <laughs> you know, while other kids are out on their skateboards, I'm sitting there going, ooh, la ba, hoo, and um, trying to be a, a trying to a, a trying pseudo Satanist, trying to be a, a, a fake um, fake Alistair Crowley, junior Alistair Crowley. I don't know where this is going, but I, I think it does kind of um, indicate a universe, a little private universe going on that's filled with very strange stuff <laughs> when i had a, a cubby house in oman i used to go down to the bottom of the valley and at the very bottom of the mountain was um what i used to call the valley of death there were uh, m- mound after mound of uh dead goats and camels and uh mules donkeys uh all the farmers in the the nearby area would bring their dying animals into the valley of death and let them wander around and, you know, eat the cactus. And uh, they would, you know, sort of pass away and then be put on top of these huge pyres, you know, of, of burning flesh. And so I would go down the mountain with a stack of empty paint tins and fill the paint tins with bones and and cool things that I found, you know, in the piles of rotting um burning meat and uh and then struggle my way probably for about two hours up the side of a mountain so that i could decorate my cubby house with all the um with all the the stuff with all the detritus of um death that i'd I'd, um found wow <laughs> That's age six, so uh, I was making my own little Texas chainsaw massacre yeah. cubby house. <laughs> yeah, you started really young. Get us to Australia. Come to Australia. Okay, so after four years of consuming movies at a at a rate of knots, and so I actually learned how to ride a bike so that I could pedal further afield <laughs> and raid all the video shops in Bahrain. To the point where my mother actually started writing letters to um, each video shop saying, please do not give my son any more horror films. <laughs> I think they're starting to disturb him. I'm understanding it was, the it state was, of your cubby house. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and, and of course the, the jigsaw puzzle and the, the burning skull. Um, 
<laughs> I think it was the moment where I was watching Monster Humanoids from the Deep, and uh, there was a scene where a half amphibious monster, half human, burst its way through a pregnant woman's stomach and sat, you know, through the tattered bits of flesh, screaming, you know, like a newborn. My mum pointed to the screen and said, this is the final straw. <laughs> no more. <laughs> so. <laughs> I actually feel for your mother. Yeah. The letters were sent out to the video shops, but of course they were making too much money off me and uh, every scrap of my pocket money was going on, you know, um, R-rated horror films. So the Indian guys working the video shops would, uh, would say, ah, oh, we have this new film. It's called Zombie Flesh Eaters. But don't tell your mother. Don't tell your mother. <laughs> so I had this clandestine ring of, you know, snuff suppliers around Bahrain feeding my habit. It was absolutely bizarre. So anyway, I, I, I used to have fantasies of having my own video shop where all the films that I really dug were there in the right order, you know, with the right amount of respect accorded to them. My dad's contract in Bahrain finished in 83 when I was 13. I came back halfway through grade eight and realized that not only had I been completely removed from what would be considered mainstream, you know, 13-year-old culture, but also I realized that I'd, I'd come from this kind of bowerbird culture where you were forced to take elements, very disparate elements, from wherever you could find them and piece them together to make this kind of um, odd little personal iconography. Imagining, of course, that back on the Sunshine Coast in 1985, 86, 87, you know, there was no such thing as an alternative scene. But still, you know, that idea of having my own video shop... Um, just really appealed to me. So how many videos did you have at this stage? Um, well, I, I had a whole bunch of bootlegs right. on Betamax from when I was in Bahrain. Um, I taped a stack of stuff off TV, but I didn't have anything, you know, that would be considered stock. Um, and I was really let down when I came back to Australia by what constituted a video shop, you know. I was used to having almost unlimited choice and then it was shrunk down to the two to 3,000 movies that every video shop had. And I was really, really bummed by this because I thought that Australia would be so much better than what I'd come from. If there isn't a kind of adventurous spirit saying, what, what's over there, um, then we all kind of slip into a very lazy, more of a sedentary um, pattern of consumption where... We kind of watch whatever our friends watch and we kind of relate to the stuff that the media uh, has apportioned out for us. Mm. You know, we always seem to be looking at the same 10 movies at any given time or talking about the same 10 books or talking about the same 10 personalities who just happen to be in rehab this week. Um, and it's... it's uh, this is something that I've been railing against since I was a kid. You know, I, I just, I don't understand that that's all there could be, you know. For, for Well, that's all most people are exposed to through popular media. That's right. But the thing is that there's, there is a choice that you make, whether you buy into that limited, um, uh, that limited 
set of choices or whether you just say, well, it's a little dull what's over there, you know, and, and I've always found that, you know, the, the obsessive personality, which I'm assuming I have. Mm, I think there's probably a fair chance of it. Yeah. Just (laughs) wants to keep running, you know, finds uh, a, a dirty, dark back alley and then just wants to keep running down it to see what you find. Um, and I, I guess that applies to, you know, uh, quite a few areas in my life that, uh, you know, I just, I just keep running down dirty, dark back well, alleys. Let's wrap up the trash video story because I know there's more stuff that we've got to talk about. So, right. so how did you evolve this amazing collection of well, I, I, weird and twisted videos? Well, I got out of, uh, I graduated from uni in 1990, end of 90. And at that point I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I knew that I wanted to do something at least creative, but had no idea how to go about it. And three years of doing an arts degree prepares you for a life in the public service. <laughs> so I got a job at Centrelink, DSS back then. And uh, for the next five years, uh, I lived a nine-to-five existence, but at the same time, I bought a pile of movies every week because I still had that um, desire in me to uh, create the ultimate video store. So were you searching out alternative? Yeah, well, I was, that, I was going for the most obscure So where were you finding titles? Through collectors. Um, is back, there, is, back then... Was there a network? Is, is there, there, a network? there were... There, there was a network. Um, you can't really say that exists anymore because VHS is... Um, you know, a, pretty much a dead beast as far as uh, commercial enterprises go. Um, at the time, a lot of video shops had a sales section or there were video brokers. And uh, I went through just about every one of them, um, getting the most obscure old drive-in films and weird art films, uh, all the while with a, a very clear idea of having... The, the strangest and the and the um, the most obscure in any given genre. And after about five years, the piles in the lounge room grew to the point where I started growing in the kitchen, and just where every um, room in the house was completely taken over with videos. And uh, by then, you know, I think after five years in the public service, you just wanted to put a gun in your mouth uh, and think, is this it? I mean, I used to spend my lunchtimes doing a little fanzine called Stumpy, um, and I would re- review, you know, old drive-in films and interview all the bands um, that I really liked in Brisbane, and that kept me sane. Running up a huge, you know, phone bill, uh, interviewing people over the phone without my boss knowing. Um, but then I got the opportunity. Uh, through a friend of mine who had a, a collectible toy store on Ann Street, um, just under what's, uh, what's now the zoo. And uh, he said, man, I'm sick and tired of hearing about this video shop. I want to see it. I want to rent from it. So we talked the landlord into um, giving me 10 weeks free rent. And the landlord took me out to lunch and said, I will make you sign on the dotted line right now <laughs> so that you're committed, so that you can't 
get out of this. And I went, oh, God, what do I do? So I ended up basically jumping off um, the top of a mountain um, into the abyss. And within 10 weeks, I pulled together a video store, you know, miraculously. Um, How many ta- uh, videotapes did you have at the time? At the time, probably around the four, four and a half thousand okay. mark. Within a very short space of time, that grew to about 8,000. Um, I lasted five years in that store. Got to the end of the five-year lease, and by then, Blockbuster had opened up around the corner. I, I was feeling really burnt out by just going it alone um, and being a micro-business surrounded by um, this encroaching kind of uh, gentrification in the valley. Um, they'd taken away our parking spots out the front to make a clearway, so no one could park. Um, I really had no idea of how to run a video store, so the place was just in chaos. And uh, after five years, I was just kind of jack of it. But then um, a guy came out of the woodwork who said, look, I'll go into partnership with you. Let's try to do this bigger and better somewhere else. And um, at that time, miraculously, again, um, friends of mine started shooting a doco about trash and uh, they followed the entire uh, collapsing of the old store and the rising of the new store out of the ashes. Was, was Chrissy behind? In, in Chris, Chris and Anthony were the two friends of mine. Because I've had Chrissy on this show back in episode three or four. Probably talking about Escape from the Planet of the Tapes. So they ended up, um, they, they shot over about a three-month period and the strangest stuff started happening, you know, as soon as they turned the cameras on. Within three years, they'd sold that doco to SBS and it became, you know, the the thing that it is, you know, mm. that's that's still taught at mm. universities. In, can you, can you, um, is that online? Can people get it? Is, is I, I don't believe so, but I think you can access it through the Griffith Film Library. Okay. Um, it's a teaching tool for documentary filmmakers oh. out of Griffith. Okay. Um, it might be chopped up in, on YouTube too. It, it may be. Mm-hmm. It may be. But so, I know that SBS screened it three times and... The ratings were through the roof. Oh. Um, and I ended up getting, you know, drinks bought for me down in Melbourne by complete random strangers who saw it and said, I loved it. I, for some reason, your story, you know, um, really struck a chord with me. I had an eight-year-old kid send me pictures that he'd drawn um, about people drowning on the set of Titanic. Very disturbed little eight-year-old kid who I uh, instantly just knew was a kindred spirit. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, uh, it, there was something about, uh, someone being able to realize their dream, uh, or having a passion and then seeing it through, um, that really, uh, touched, um, a nerve in quite a few people. And, um, yeah, we, we just got the, the most amazing response from it. Wow. I've, I've never seen it. I must, must have motivated me to go and find it now. So I can have I'll burn it. a copy of it for you. Oh, okay. Um, Escape from Planet of the Tapes. Escape from the Planet of the Tapes. And so it was about me saying, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, please help, and then help arriving uh, in the form of a mysterious benefactor who says, let's do this um, in a much more dramatic way. And so we've now got to the uh, almost the nine-year mark in West End. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, And how many tapes you got here? Tapes and DVDs? Tapes... Upstairs and downstairs in the basement, probably around the 15,000 mark. All right. 
I'd say, um, without having to count them, um, probably about another three to four thousand DVDs. So it's it's growing. Uh, and of those of that, what's that? Eighteen, nineteen thousand. What do you, mm. what do you reckon? Uh, What's, what's the percentage that's alternative compared to mainstream? Because you do have a little bit of mainstream stuff here. Well, we have to. Yeah, Because it's good. the last thing you want to do is um, tell people that, uh, you know, a mainstream film is completely worthless because it's just not true, you know. Mm. What I tend to do is apply the 98% of shit rule. And so, you know, 98% of foreign films will probably not be that great. Um Ninety-eight percent of anime, ninety-eight percent of Australian films, um, and ninety-eight percent of mainstream. I, I'm always looking for that two percent um, in any given genre that that rises above the rest. And I've watched some great mainstream films. You know, my one of my real guilty pleasures, and I mean, I feel ashamed even uh, admitting to this, but um, romantic comedies. Uh, you're a softy at heart. Oh, I'm a putz. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Chick flicks. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I find that quite a few of them are so, you know, um, morally bankrupt and emotionally manipulative and are quite evil. But there are some, you know, like, uh, you know, about a boy, for instance. <laughs> There's something about Hugh Grant that I weirdly connect with. And, um, you know, some of those British romantic comedies from the last 10 years are actually quite good. You know, Notting Hill. Oh, God! <laughs> Shoot me! I am shocked and but mortified to hear you say I've probably seen Notting Hill about five or six times. And, wow, you, know, you, I, you watch that and then you watch the most gore-fests. Uh, um, and I I watch the most beautiful of art films yeah. as well. Trash is here. It's operating. It's still functional. Mm. I know you struggle financially and all that sort of stuff, don't you? Well, it's a it's a micro business. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's beyond a small business. You still got your partner? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But um, but you know, he is off doing uh, you know, his own thing. He's, he's got a full time job, and uh, it's difficult for him to try and commit any time uh, effort to the store so I pretty much do it alone and there are times when I just can't function you know because it is all too much Hmm. Um, so I kind of go into shutdown mode quite frequently Um, and that's just purely because of stress and anxiety um, which you know comes with the territory well, I'm going to lead you now because this place supports Wang Wang. So it's time to talk about Wang Wang. Oh, okay. It's the uh, International Institute of Wang. 15-year obsession with, Who? A, with, a, with a little 2'9 Filipino midget James Bond. <laughs> and it's the most bizarre, <laughs> bizarre thing. I've actually had a look on your blog. And All I'd, right. I'd like to actually grab a couple of those photos off the blog sure. so people can see what this four foot double oh seven looks like. Two foot nine. Two foot nine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Try to get your head around that one. He's, uh, he's in the Guinness Book of Records as the shortest ever leading man in a motion picture. And the thing that surprised me is he's not 
he doesn't suffer dwarfism in no. the sense of you know the large head, the large hands, the short limbs. He's no, you're thinking, yeah, that's right. He's not he's, a dwarf, and he's not a, a midget who um, also have a, a very distinctive look yeah, about them. He looks like he's a miniature human. He's a he's a he is a miniature human. He's um, he uh, was born with what they call primordial dwarfism, which is probably the rarest form of uh, small person syndrome. So t- t- tell us tell us about. Wang Wang, and tell us about your journey that we, well, you and I have already talked about it, so you have to tell these people who are listening. Well, it, it was about 15, 16 years ago when a friend of mine handed me a tape and said, man, you, you're going to have to see this. This is nuts. It was a film called For Your Height Only. And I remember reading about it. It was about a, it was a midget James Bond spoof. No one kind of knew where it was from. It just appeared seemingly out of nowhere. So, uh, so I watched it, and it was literally the most absurd uh, and mind-blowing film that I'd ever seen up until that point. And you know, I've watched a lot of strange shit in my time, but this just took the cake. I mean, I was literally in stitches, um, and at the same time, my mind was going a hundred miles an hour trying to think where did this film come from where did this little midget james bond come from where did he come from what happened to him after the film was finished you know why does this film you know exist in english you know how far did this film get distributed and of course there was no internet at the time when uh when uh i watched it or at least internet was in its infancy so i didn't have access to it and uh, for the next five years, I probably tried every avenue I could to, to find out about um, where this film or how this film had evolved, to the point where I rang up the um, Philippine Film Commission in Manila <laughs> and said to them, I'm, I'm trying to find out information about Wang Wang. I said, never heard of him, hung up. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. So uh, I had a dream one night, and this was about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And uh, I dreamt that I had a camera in one hand and a phone in the other, and I was in a hotel room in Manila. And I was on the phone to, to someone saying, my name is Andrew Liebold. I'm a, an Australian filmmaker here in Manila doing a documentary about Wang Wang woke up and I thought that's a great idea for a movie filed it away in the back of my head (laughs) meanwhile a second Wang Wang film appeared out of out of nowhere I thought holy shit he made more than one film again it was just uh, an absurd James Bond spoof but uh, this time he was working for Interpol (laughs) and uh, oh you know there was all kinds of nonsense going on. So I tried to find out information about that, ran into so many brick walls. Then Bobby Suarez um, came out of the woodwork. I I found through Googling, thanks to the miracle of the internet, um, I found a guy in Singapore, a diplomat for the French embassy in Singapore, who was somehow connected with the star of they call her Cleopatra Wong. That was another one of these Philippine, crazy Philippine 
James Bond knockoffs that I'd discovered along the way, only this time with a, you know, a five foot nine Chinese woman <laughs> playing uh, a super spy called Cleopatra Wong. Not Cleopatra Jones, but Cleopatra Wong. Anyway, another film that just blew my mind. So within a week of sending him an email, I managed to get hold of both the star and the director of They Call It Cleopatra Wong. And I interviewed both of those guys over the phone. And uh, so uh, almost magically, the head of the Brisbane Film Festival said, uh, oh, we're doing a Philippine retrospective this year. Would you like to do a cut-up? Because I, I used to do a lot of cut-ups and do a, a running commentary over the top of them, kind of like a, a filmic lecture. She said, um, do you want to do one on the crazy B-films of the Philippines? And if you want, we'll screen one of those films in its entirety. What film would you like to do? I said, they call it Cleopatra Wong, of course. I've just talked to the director and the star sent an email to Murray Lee, the star, and she said, if you're playing that film at the Brisbane Film Festival, I'm flying myself to Brisbane. <laughs> so within a couple of months, there was They Call It Cleopatra Wong on the big screen, and I did this massive cut-up of about 40 or 50 Philippine B-films and screened it um, at a seminar at Biff. Cleo Wong was sitting next to me, and she saw Wang Wang on the big screen, and she went... <gasps> I met him. She said he was on Bobby Suarez's desk uh, and he was talking to him about starring in a film where Wang Wang played the baby Jesus. And then Bobby passed him around from person to person like he was a little baby. I went, my God, you touched Wang Wang. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, and he was, oh, man, if you know what I mean. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to know what just happened. <laughs> so anyway, this, this guy came up to me after, this big bear of a guy. And he goes, you love Wang Wang? I love Wang Wang, too. I went, oh, that's great, whoever you are. <laughs> he goes, I'm from the Philippines. I went, oh, right, so you know exactly what's going on here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Turns out that he's the, the programmer of the Cinemanilla Film Festival, and he's also one of the country's most celebrated filmmakers, a guy called Tikoy Aguiluz. And uh, he said, oh, man, you know, you want to you come to Manila and uh, do this at the... At my film festival, I'm like, Shh, you know, is that is that Pope a pointy-headed kitty fiddler? Well, of course. Why the hell not? So uh, I somehow managed to scrape together the plane fare to Manila, went to Manila, and I took a camera with me because I thought, aha, maybe Just I can start my maybe. search for Wang Wei. And who, who knew where that was going to take it? So anyway, turn up to the Philippines, and uh, a couple of days later, I was driving around with Bobby Suarez's son. Bobby picked me up from the airport, embraced me, adopted me there on the spot as a member of the Suarez clan, and has to this date just, you know, taken me to his country house every time I'm in the Philippines, feeds me and treats me like a prince. Oh my god, it's awesome. And and Marie does the same thing whenever I go to Singapore too. Um So uh, I was with Bobby's son, Richard. We went to the film academy and uh, we ran into this six foot four African American guy outside the uh, the office. He was um, he was African American, 
And uh, Richard said, oh, man, this, this, this guy was in my one of my dad's films, One-Armed Executioner. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> One-Armed Executioner. I said, I'm doing this documentary on Philippine B films. He's like, oh, well, you want to you wanna talk to me? I was in hundreds of the goddamn things. I went, okay, cool. Took his card. Turns out later that he was one of the voices on For Your Height Only. <laughs> when I interviewed him, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, Dick Randall got me to dub the thing into English. And I said, so you're one of those guys that blew my mind 15 years ago when I first saw this film. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I was three of the villains. I said, so you're the guy who said, one day you're going to wake up and find yourself dead. He said, yes, that's me. <laughs> I went, holy shit. Anyway, half an hour after meeting him outside the film academy, I turn up to the film museum. And uh, there was a guy, unassuming looking guy in a baseball cap, milling around the car park. Richard said, ah, this guy edited all of my dad's films as well. I went, wow. We played, they call it Cleopatra Wong at Biff a couple of months ago. Oh, that's great. I said, so um, I'm doing a documentary about Wang Wang. He said, oh, I edited all of Wang Wang's films too. I went, you're kidding. He said, yeah, yeah, all, all ten of them. I went, and so you can actually hear on camera me going, you're joking. It was one of those amazing afternoons where... Not one, but two people that were connected with the Wang Wing story fell literally out of the sky <laughs> through the Cleopatra Wong connection and made themselves, you know, visible to me in a country of 80 million people. If you can imagine that Manila is like um, 15 cities tacked together to make Metro Manila um, with a combined population of somewhere around the 25 million mark. And the place is run by the laws of chaos. So you can't navigate yourself around without having to do a deal with the laws of chaos <laughs> and assume that what you want to do may not happen, but those um, the tide of chaos will take you to somewhere very interesting, at least. <laughs> and it's always an exhilarating surf ride, you know, along the tide of chaos. Um, so how, how's it going? How, have you continued down this path? Well, I, I ended up going to the Philippines a total of five times. And uh, at the end of trip one, I must have had about 12 interviews in the can. And I thought, yeah, this is good. Not bad. I got the editor. I got one of the voices. Um, I got one of the stunt guys. Um, I thought, mm, yeah, really like to keep digging so uh jim Gaines, the african-american guy rang me up and he said dude you know that uh crazy italian guy you know used to make all the zombie films you know like uh, zombie flesh eaters i'm like bruno yeah yeah bruno's coming back to the philippines he said and uh i'm i'm the i'm the actor and uh and the production manager on this crazy cockamamie thing do you want to want to come over and uh, come to the set and film uh, I went Shh, are you kidding so scraped together another two grand for the next trip and I went I'm going back to the Philippines and whatever happens happens on that second trip I, I went to Bruno's set during um, pre-production and I got to meet you know one of my childhood heroes the director of zombie uh, zombie creeping flesh Within four weeks, he passed away too. So that was wow. really bittersweet too. 
the fact that I managed to capture the last interview with Bruno Mattia. Um, and his last film happened to be a zombie film in the Philippines, weirdly enough. Um, but also on that trip, I managed to, uh, to come across a, a leg man, you know, a schedule master who knew just about everyone. And, um, I said, can you find the director of For Your Hide Only for me, Eddie Nickard? Oh, Eddie, yeah, 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 he lives out of Tai Tai. I'll, I'll, um, I'll bring, you, bring him to you. And uh, so within two days, this guy walks up to me and he goes, hi, I'm Eddie Nickard. I'm like, Holy shit. So I sat him down, turned the camera on. I said, you know, what was Wang Wang's real name? He goes, I don't know. I said, so where did he come from? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, the... Is he alive or dead? Oh, I, I think he died. I don't know. Don't really know for sure. So when when did that happen? Mm. So how many movies did you make with Wang Wang? Oh, I can't remember. I said, okay, <laughs> dead end. I thought this is yeah. as close as I'm going to yeah. get to Wang Wang. And even the guy who did, who trained him to become a stuntman, and probably probably made most of Wang Wang's films doesn't remember any of the details I thought shit a brick you know where do you go from here so the search for Wang Wang ended at that moment day later I got a phone call from the leg man and he said I found Wang Wang's brother and that changed everything so within two days I was in the poorest part of Manila a place called um, Pasai City and went into the house of what turned out to be Wang Wing's only living relative, only living relative. And there was a five foot five version of Wang Wing staring back at me and it was just amazing. And he showed me Wang Wing's birth certificate. His real name was Ernesto de la Cruz. I found out where he was born, when he was born. Then he showed me his death certificate. I went, shit, he is So dead. he died. So he did die. And uh, he died in 92. So just before I saw For Your Eye Only. So obviously, Wang Wang was sitting on my shoulder the whole time, tapping me, going, <coughs> tell my story. And his story ends up being, you know, um, uh, a metaphor for so many other things. But anyway, um, saw the death certificate, interviewed him, got Wang Wang's story, you know, how he was a, uh, a, almost a miracle birth. A uh, tiny little thing, no bigger than a small Coke bottle, um, that who no one expected would live. You imagine this is 1957 in Manila, in the poorest part of Manila. They had to fashion a humidifier out of a shoebox and a fluoro tube, and he lay, lay in that for the first year of his life. When he survived the first year, everyone went. <gasps> Santo Nino, the little saint. And they believed that he was the reincarnation of Santo Nino, who's a, a you know, really powerful uh, baby Jesus icon in the, uh, in the Philippines. And every year um, in Baclaran, the, the part of Pasay City where he was born, um, they would dress him up as Santo Nino and parade him through the street. <laughs> In a ceremonial gown with a scepter in one hand and an orb in the other. This is when he was a child. This is while he was a child, but also as he uh, as he grew. Well, he didn't grow past two foot nine. But um, he was a, a little simple-minded child, probably with a mental age 
by the time you reached adulthood of around 10 or 11. Oh, okay. So intellectually, uh, he never matured. Either. Never really. Never really matured at all. Um, but he loved acrobatics and he loved karate and went to karate school where his black belt instructor, and he ended up getting a black belt, um, his instructor said to a film producer called Peter Caballi, man, you're going to have to see this. This is insane. This midget with a black belt. <laughs> It'll blow your mind. They call him Wang Wang. You know, the family nickname was Wang Wang. You know, like what you would call a small dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what it was. Anyway, Peter Caballas and his wife, they were two very ambitious um, business people from Laguna. They, uh, they went, ah, got an idea that we might be able to turn him into a, into a, a kind of pop culture sensation. So they shipped, um, shipped him around various producers, including Bobby Suarez. And Bobby said, no, 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 they, they, weren't, they didn't want to make a, a little baby Jesus film. They wanted to make him as a miniature Superman. And he said, ah, I was doing my own films at the time. He said, I, I did The Bionic Boy, and that was enough. <laughs> um, anyway, he ended up in a, ca- a couple of cameo roles in, in Dolphy, the King of Philippine Comedies movies. They did a couple of their own films, but they weren't very successful. But the Dolphy films um, lifted his profile, and everyone was wondering who the hell this little karate-kicking midget was. So then they fashioned a series of films, these Agent 00 films, spoof on James Bond. And um, miraculously, one of those films sold at the 1982 Manila International Film Festival that Amel de Marcos put on. And the film was sold, dubbed into English and sold all over the world. Because Wang Wang was running around the film festival doing push-ups on his thumbs and, you know, posing with European starlets and, uh, and literally blew everyone's minds just by his sheer presence. And uh, I went, holy crap! This is uh, this is how that film managed to uh, to bleed into the international arena. And I heard rumours from various people that uh, you know that he was a, a a real life secret agent. You know that he used to um, do singing duets with Imelda Marcos. <laughs> so I went, okay, I'm going to have to put these rumours to rest. I tracked down Marcos's daughter, Amy turned the camera on her and I said so let's talk about Wang Wang she's like ah Wang Wang <laughs> I said so is it true that your brother was you know in love with Wang she goes oh no my whole family were enamored she said Amelda thought that he was a little saint and she said I'm western educated I don't buy into the superstitions you know of the of the common folk but she said even with my sophisticated veneer, I still recognized that there was something really special about him. And she said everyone was kind of touched here mm. in their hearts by him. Um, so she said, I, I can't explain just how much of a phenomenon he was. So uh, anyway, he, he uh, made a few more films with the Cabalias, but they never achieved the same successes for your height only. And within about... And within about a year, uh, Cora, the wife, 
decided that she wanted to go into politics. So Lily Film Productions closed down shop and he was sent home to then, you know, fade into obscurity because um, the Philippines is very much a fad, uh, novelty-driven culture and there was another novelty to replace him. And he didn't have any real longevity, I suppose. No, well, not at all. As a sheer novelty, his time was up. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So he was very much a flash in the pan. Um, he tried to do vaudeville shows with uh, with this guy called Polito, um, a comedian who is a, a kind of stick-thin, anorexic-looking um, comedian. Polito's um, Mexican for matchstick. Right. And so he used to he used to do this act called um, <clears throat> James Bone, and they would do a double act where the midget James Bond would beat up the anorexic James Bond. <laughs> And vice versa, right? You know, and <laughs> like I said, it's vaudeville, isn't it? it sounds like pure, vo- pure sounds vaudeville. Like something out of the '30s. Yeah, and uh, and and really, you know, you have to spend time in the Philippines, um, getting to know the culture to actually understand how this lowbrow humour works. Uh, it's it it is incredibly lowbrow, and it's based on you know this very cruel assumption that people with deformities are funny. <laughs> And uh, so a, a midget beating up an anorexic, ah, comedy girl. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, he he ended up um, um, eating some bad crab. This is after he'd um, spent a, quite a few years drinking, getting a little, a little fat and a little wang wang in the head. Um, Not a lot of alcohol would go a long way in him too. Absolutely, it? yeah, a couple of stubbies. He is a couple of stubbies. Well, yes. <laughs> He's short and brown. Yeah, I guess he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he, he ate some bad crab and ended up suffering a, a, quite a severe stroke. It paralyzed half of his body. And after about 18 months of going downhill, you know, he finally um, died of a heart attack from right. um, hypertension. And He must have been pretty young. He must have been, what, about 30 or something? Uh, he was 35. He was, a, he was about two weeks short of his 35th birthday, right. which for... A primordial dwarf is incredible. They're not expected to live past 30. Okay. They always suffer circulation problems. Okay. So living in poverty at the end of his life and, and the li- beginning... Living, he's, it, he's living in well. abject poverty, yeah. Mm. Um, Weng Weng's brother drove me to the house where he was born and where he passed away. And uh, he said, you see this roof? This, um, you know, tiled roof. That was paid for by Weng Weng's life insurance. He said, up until Wang Wing's passing, it was still uh, a Nipah um, palm leaf oh, okay. roof with okay. a dirt floor. Right. And this is from someone who, uh, whose movies had sold all over the world. There's a bit of a question mark over, you but know... Who got where, the money? Well, everyone knows who got the money. You know, Kabali's got four houses out of it. He got pocket money. <laughs> so... There's a bit of a question there over, you know, whether Wang Wei was treated fairly or not. Mm. And uh, that's why I've, I've been trying to track down Cora. Peter passed away about two years ago, but uh, but Cora is in L.A. Or she's um, a couple of hours outside of L.A. And so I rang her up and I said, Cora, I'd really like to talk to you about this. And she said, all right, if you want to, you want to talk to me, I want to see you eye to eye. You come to me. So I scraped together another two grand flew to LA 
rang her up the week before. I said, I'm on my way. And she said, fine, give me a ring when you get here. She didn't pick up the phone for three weeks. So I've got footage of me sitting in the gutter in Hollywood. Now, there's a metaphor for you. <laughs> Hollywood Hills in the background. Me sitting in the gutter saying saying to her answering machine, Cora, it's Andrew. I've come all this, the way from this is, <laughs> Yeah, this is my absolute last day that I can make it up the coast to interview you. Can you please give me a call back on this number? And that was it. And she and, didn't. And, and she didn't. I've since talked to her son. Oh, she's in Fresno at the moment. But um, but now that uh, now that I've got a producer, and we've got a deal with one of the broadcasters, ah, we can now approach her with uh, a much more professional deal, so- which includes a budget uh, and also a request for the rights to use clips from Wingling's films. I'm determined to get her side of the story because I can't have a one-sided documentary where um, just about everyone who worked with Wang Wang said, I think he was treated unfairly. Right. And I can't have a hatchet job uh, on the Kabbalias without getting their side of the story. Yeah. And yeah. since Peter's no longer there, it all hinges on whether Cora um, will, will speak to me or not. Mm. Yeah. But then, after having gone to Wang Wang's house he uh one of his brother then drove me in his jeepney because he's a jeepney driver you know a, a, they're a kind of cross between a taxi and a, and a bus fashioned out of old world war ii um u.s army jeeps <laughs> um he drove me to wang wing's last resting place and i filmed the walk up to the grave and there it was you know this very simple um family tomb Everyone's buried above ground in the Philippines because there's no bloody room to um, tunnel downwards. And there he was, sandwiched between his grandparents and his parents. There was um, the last resting place at Wang Wang. And so mm. I, I put my hand on on the plaque and I thought, my God, I have literally got as close as you can. Yeah. And I have um, I've followed an idea to its absolute logical conclusion. Mm. Um, and that sense of, that sense of achievement, because it was, you know, against almost impossible odds, I couldn't afford to go to the Philippines to do that. But somehow I'd done it twice at that point. Uh, and, I, and I'd achieved what I'd set out to do. That sense of accomplishment, as well as the, the sheer humanity of the story, was just overwhelming. And um, so I sat in Selling's Jeep and uh, we were driving away from the, from the cemetery and I just wept. And I just... You, you know when a moment just changes you forever? That was it. That one moment. Putting the hand on Wayne's mm. plaque. Mm. And... You, you do realise that, you know, you've probably spent a life putting ideas into action, dreaming of something and then making it concrete. But when you dream up something so far-fetched that you think that you could never possibly, um, you could never possibly come even close to doing it, and you do it, my God, you know, you realise that the world is 
there for you to create. Um, and with that, you know, you realize that you have to do it in, in a way that, uh, that speaks about your own personal truths and you, you do it in a way, um, you do it in a way that is honest, uh, and heartfelt that's the responsibility to yourself that you have to live up to. Mm, I know what you mean. Mm. Yeah. So, you've got a deal. Yes. And So after two and a half years, uh, a broadcaster, I can't say which one, but a, right. a broadcaster has uh, committed to, to being right. the broadcaster. So this means that you can move it through to completion? Um, yes, yes. Assuming that we get through the next round of um, funding applications, right? So we've got X amount of dollars. We've probably got about um, two thirds of the budget committed, um, but that last third is um, is not going to be impossible. But it will still require jumping through the hoops right. to right. achieve, right. and that funding will have to come from overseas. We've got a number of options um, to explore, one of which is um, going to a documentary conference in Canada and pitching to overseas distributors. And okay. And would you take, like, take a, a cut-up of what you've already got to we, help well, explain the story? Well, we would take the cut-up that we showed the broadcast. Oh, okay. You've already got one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've, got a, uh, we've got a composite. We've got a, um, uh, a preliminary treatment, which, of course, is going to... Um, evolve once we go back to the Philippines yep. to do more reshoots. Yep. Um, the broadcaster has um, asked that the camera be turned on me ah, so, so yeah. that it becomes more of a documentary about my journey than Wang Wang's journey. Right. So it's an exploration of you going out to discover Wang Wang rather than just a story about Wang Wang. Yeah, but, uh, but also telling um, uh, the story of the Philippines be film industry. Oh, okay. So you can... And also providing a snapshot of the Philippines today. Okay. Uh, and placing um, Wang, both Wang Wang's story and also um, their film industry's um, story within a cultural and political context. Okay. Both then and now. Okay. Okay. So it's going to have multiple eyes to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, and I saw Aimee Marcos on my last trip at, um, at a film summit. And uh, she said, ah, Andrew of the Wang. <laughs> I said, hi. And she goes, wow, you keep coming back, don't you? And I said, I told you I would. Ah, she said, um, I'll try to get a, an interview with my mum. Wow. Um, wow. When, when you come back next time. and uh, That would be a coup. And seriously, you know, that, that and also talking to former president Joseph Estrada which I should be able to do on the next trip as well. Wow. Those kind of people uh, really are the, the pinnacle yeah. of... Um, I mean, they're, they're, those two are as close as you can possibly get to royalty in the Philippines, and you have to understand the story of Wang Wang um, weaves its way through every strata of society. You know, if he's in, in, entwined in the story of the Marcos family as well as, you know, his uh, De La Cruz family in the poorest part of 
Baclaran, then he may have been just a flash in the pan, but he was... Uh, he was um, still um, like a little saint, you know, who touched every possible um, layer of society. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe over a short period of time, but um, but still. Wow. So, if it all goes well, when do you, when are you hoping for uh, release, broadcast, whatever? Two thousand and ten. At some point in 2010. Oh, do you reckon next year? Yeah. 2010, okay. okay. I can imagine that um, shooting will take about another seven to eight months and then probably six months of post-production. Okay. And then, of course, you know, you have to go through the pre-publicity yeah, and yeah. then the film festival. Yeah. So maybe the end of next year. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully right. by the end of next year. I'll make sure there's a link when it eventually comes through. You'll tell me. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I will here. Yeah. I'll be calling it from the... Top of the Mountains. Yeah. That's the story of Wang Wang. Mm. What other films have you made? All of the films I've done up until now have been what you would call experimental films, or they're, they're still experiments, um, either in genre or in technique. I did an hour-long recreation of a 60s exploitation film about six years ago called Lesbo A Go-Go. <laughs> it, was, um, it was an attempt to do uh, a, a 60s adult film you know, one of those porn without porn films, mm. um, using the same um, the same restrictions that a '60s adult film would have. So you couldn't show nudity, you couldn't have profane language, um, you basically couldn't show anything, but you could hint at it. Mm. And so what I what I ended up doing was um, doing the most salacious story that I could, but within a sort of PG rated did it have all the visual bad, all the bad music uh, it had a, a fake 60s go-go soundtrack oh lovely um, it had uh, a lot of analog sound effects um, it was shot without sound the same way that a Doris Wishman film um, would be would be shot Doris it was a, the whole thing was a tribute to Doris she was um, one of the only female filmmakers working within the exploitation field and uh, she was a tiny little um, New York Jewish lady uh, who made up the rules as she went along. She was an absolute dynamo that was bringing up something like three or four films a year, all shot without sound. She would shoot the back of someone's head while they were talking so that she didn't have to, you know, sync up the lips. So she wouldn't have to sync up the the dialogue in post. Um, of course, she couldn't show too much as well because of the, the um, censorship restrictions of the day. So the, the storylines would be the most scandalous possible. There'd be lesbianism, drug addiction, murder, um, kidnapping, rape, abortion, but none of that would be on the screen. It, was all, it would always be talked about. So I thought, what a great idea. You know? So I, I fashioned a story about a, a young innocent, you know, a, a virginal... Um, would-be bride whose fiancé is, um, you know, uh, assassinated by the mob for um, wrestling debts. And um, she ends up getting taken in by the, by the, the mobster, um, beaten, tortured, thrown in the garbage. She's then picked up by a predatory lesbian who does the same thing, gets her hooked on tranquilizers. Um, she finds out that she's pregnant to the mob boss and then 
gets raped while having an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> Pauling. Pauling. And ends up, you know, stabbed in the gutter by her ex-girlfriend's ex-girlfriend um, using a syringe um, because she's become a hopeless drug addict through, uh, you know, her involvement with Kitten. So, um, <laughs> so uh, of course, you know, the whole thing on the surface looks like a PG film, but oh, no. <laughs> it's absolutely... Revolted, and I screened the film in Adelaide, and these two girls walked out of the screening, and they were mortified. They were like, oh, I, 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 I feel dirty. I feel dirty. And I said to them, "Over what exactly?" And they went, the, the, "The whole, the whole thing." And I thought, "My God, mission accomplished." You know, if I can get that reaction. You know, if they're so horrified, you know, down to their very core over what they believe they've seen, <laughs> then it's that uh, then it's uh, uh, that whole idea of sell the sizzle and not the steak has worked to a uh, to to a T. So, you know, it's a, it's a rough home movie, but I kind of like it. And again, it was just an experiment in seeing if you could. Um, do something using various obstructions. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, I think it worked. But anyway, the the next one I did was... Lesbo Go-Go, high art. Le- Lesbo Go-Go, yeah. The next <laughs> one was about... Um, was a recreation of the West End lesbian vampire murder of 1989. And it was called Bluebirds of Peace and Destruction. The, you mean based on the real story? Based on the real story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very loosely based, because what I didn't want to do was... Um, you know, do a biopic. Um, and by the time we edited it down, um, it was meant to be like a, like a vampire killer's home movie where the camera is the fourth person. Um, but, uh, I had a very gung ho editor who said, no, keep it tight, keep it tight. And ended up at 25 minutes. So, um, I, I kind of like that film too. It's, um, what was it called? Uh, it was called bluebirds of peace and destruction. Okay. Yep. And, uh, it was an attempt to kind of, um, do a story about two young girls who were quite sweet and innocent in their own way, but they also were involved with some quite seedy stuff. And then once the catalytic event of performing a murder happens, you watch the disintegration of everyone's psyche um, and they end up turning on each other. And, um, um, you know, I, tr- I wanted to capture the chaos and the... the um, just that frisson, um, that electricity that happens after such a, a horrific event occurs. You know, it's all done. You know, with the camera being the, the the fourth member of the of the cast, and so people are actually addressing the camera. And um, you know, I I, I kind of like that too. But again, it's just rough as guts, and um, it's kind of hard to sit through. And at <laughs> one point. I've got the white noise in the background just absolutely piercing so that you're completely disorientated. I think it's funny. <laughs> it's not meant to be funny, but, but there's some very, very humorously uh, black moments in it. <laughs> there you go, you know. Um, and, of course, we filmed it on the, the spot where the, the actual murder happened, and uh, it was during the week. We, we filmed it over a 36-hour period so that it was shot really quickly, that there was real psychodrama happening, so that we hardly had any sleep Everybody whatsoever. Everybody was stressed. And... Everyone was stressed. Mm. I was 
setting one cast member off against the other and just filming it to see what happened. And um, <laughs> by the end of it, you know, one person wasn't talking to me, and uh, and uh, it, it was it was just quite ghastly. It was a ghastly experience, but um, exactly what you wanted. But it was exactly what I wanted. Uh, and, uh, and again, mission accomplished. You know, I, I captured this kind of weird psychodrama um, from a cast of non-professional actors, and uh, instead of training them up what i did was just drag them down um to a very weird place and then turn the camera on them and you know a couple of other things film club here a couple of um, tv commercials there but nothing of uh of the uh level of search for wang wang Uh, and you know i'm pleased to say that this is the film that's you know suddenly taking me very rapidly up to so this is the exciting thing in your life at the moment isn't it uh, this this is probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me up until this point. Right. I can't imagine my life without trash because really this is the culmination of, you know, almost 30 years of film obsession. No, it is 30 years of film obsession, maybe even longer. What about the impact of the internet, downloads, all that sort of stuff? How much does that impact you? Well... You have to look at what people are downloading. And really, most people just kind of um, go for the same 10 films that everyone's talking about. You know what I mean? Mm. If, I, if I had a blockbuster franchise, I would be shitting nettles right now because um, the bulk of my business would be in the kind of films that Joe Blow is downloading at a rate of knots on his computer. Um, the stranger stuff tends to not go on download sites or if it does it takes a long time to download and really it's just as easy to come in here and rent it for $2.20 we've always been about um, creating an archive of rare, unusual, forgotten classic and completely ignored films so the focus of our business is really not what is happening um, in that internet download culture. So I actually see us as being more and more, um, more and more useful as the years go on. As DVD mutates into Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and there's a very conscientious push by the industry to change formats once again. Um, as that happens, you're going to find a lot of movies disappear from the video shelves the same way that VHS started to disappear 10 years ago. And each time there's a change of format, you get a kind of cultural decimation. It's more than a decimation. It's a cultural genocide going on. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's the Khmer Rouge campaign of, of, of terror of the video world where all of a sudden half the movies that you, you go looking for are no longer mm. there. Mm. Um, and it's only the super popular ones like, say, the Star Wars, the Apocalypse Now, is that go from VHS <clears throat> to DVD to Blu-ray? At, at first, yeah. I mean, it, it takes a very long time for the new format to catch up, if ever. And DVD, you know, certainly made um, inroads into, you know, the more weird and obscure it obscure areas. For instance, you know, there'd never been any of the the, the really good Bergman films. 
or the Goddard films um, on VHS, all of a sudden they started appearing on DVD. But it will be less likely for them to appear on Blu-ray once the um, changeover occurs because there's going to be that rush to get all the new stuff out first and then start worrying about the back catalogue stuff. You know, I wonder if it's ever recorded digitally, if it's on DVD, mm. what will happen is it'll just end up on the web and eventually mm. just be downloaded. Yeah. And, and it may never go to Blu-ray, but it'll, it'll just end up as data on the web somewhere. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. On, on a BitTorrent site, and that's where people download it from. Yeah. So if it ever turns into digital, it yeah. will be stored forever somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, true. It just has to get to that. Yeah. And you've got a lot of analogue tapes here that may never go digital. Exactly. Exactly. And so, what about all those 16 and 35 millimetre films from long gone? that have never even gone to tape. I know, I know. And I know collector friends down south who have warehouses full of 16 mil, 35 mil cans. And uh, they're jealously guarding them because they know that this is probably the last remaining mm, print mm, in existence. Mm. Um, well, the Ned Kelly film's a classic example. They ended up piecing part of that movie it. together from yep. several different sources. Yep. Yeah. Um, so really, there, there's this kind of care factor involved in preserving this stuff. Yeah. As long as there are people there who see worth in older technology, for one thing, and also what most people would consider redundant culture, as long as there are those kind of uh, preservation projects such as this... And also, you know, the, the, the collectors out there that are holding on and, and preserving tape, film, probably eventually DVD. <laughs> as long as that's going on, then I think we're, we're okay. And so, really, I see Trash's role as being a kind of um, museum, almost, of redundant and dilapidated technology. However, as long as we're providing machines on which to play them, as long as people still have either VHS players or DVD players, they're still going to have access to this stuff. And I see that that's our mission now as it has always been, and that is to just try and, you know, break those very narrow boundaries that we as a culture create for ourselves and try and put that spirit of adventure back into movie watching instead of just relying on the same old shit, you know, that everybody talks about and everybody watches. And, you know, for God's sake, you know, there's there's so much more to life than just what we perceive, you know, um, through our blinkers, through the, the blinkers mm-hmm. that sometimes are necessarily there because there is so much stuff out there and it becomes overwhelming. And I suspect that's why um, we do shrink down to a very small frame of reference because um, the deluge of information out there is just so intimidating. I'm not like that. You know, I want to keep going um, because that's very much part of my personality. That's part of my brain chemistry that I can't sit still for a second and just go, well, that'll do. I want to keep discovering new stuff and... At the same time, I want to present it (laughs) and show people and go, isn't this neat? Have you considered dot, 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 dot? And then being able to present it into um, a framework of understanding so that it does become more accessible. That's what I ended up doing for two years on Bridge 31. 
um, doing Friday night double bills of the weirdest stuff that you could ever imagine. There was always a five-minute preamble saying, you know, came from this director who also did this, 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 and this. The genre was started by this film, developed along the lines of this. And so so you, it's a whole education in the background. Ab- absolutely. Mm. And I think by placing things in into a context, it then makes it easier to, to digest. Yeah. Um, and you have to do it in a way that, that isn't, uh, that doesn't use, you know, overly technical or exclusive mm. language. Mm. You know, the trick is to make it accessible to the most number mm. of people. That's what I think Search for Wang Wang will do to this completely unknown world of Filipino B-films, you know, and do it in such a way that will get people fired up about it because I think this stuff is gold. Again, it's, it's, it all comes down to uh, accessibility and also um, context. So, you know, that, that's how I see my role as a, as a facilitator, mm. as a, as a contextualizer, as a, as a provocateur, a cultural provocateur. Amazing, amazing story. What's your, what's your contacts? If people want to get a hold of you, how do they get hold of you? Um, I'll put uh, the links on the site, but um, well, either by email. That's always a good way to do it. Yeah, it's okay. uh, trash at trashvideo.com.au. So, is there a site trashvideo.com? There is trashvideo.com.au. Yep. There's also a number of blog sites. If you go to one, there's going to be links to the other. But if you go to andrewlevold.blogspot.com, that will get the search for Wang Wang blog. Right. And then you can get to read about those Philippine adventures, um, or just by phone. Oh um, seven. Three eight double four seven eight double four. I'm pretty much at trash most of the time. Yeah, you haven't got a life, have you? No, <laughs> out, out, outside of trash. No, no, not really. But you know, it's Vulture uh, Street, West End. Accidentally Vulture Street. Yeah. yeah, come and um, come and get one of a lot of videos. Yeah, um, that's it. I think. What do you reckon? It's been grouse. <laughs> Beauty. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> See Thanks. you, mate. Thank you.